0: the way I describe ego is like, it comes with the human packaging. It's like part of your survival circuitry. It's part of being human. It's a beautiful part of being human. It's our survival software. It's the thing that's installed within us, you know, on this 2 million year old setting that is designed to keep us safe and alive. And it does a really great job. You know, whenever I start working with a client, I'm like, well, your ego has done a wonderful job thus far. And I'm just very grateful that it existed. And it is kind of an impersonal thing, but it feels very personal at times. It's not something that we can get rid of. I don't think you can kill your ego. It is just a part of our consciousness that keeps us in a state of safety. But I think in terms of healing, if the ego is running the show of your life, which it was for me, and I'm sure it was for most of us before we kind of become aware of it, I think that that's where we get really mixed up.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. Welcome back! I am so excited for today's guest, Trish Law. She is an incredible life coach and breathwork teacher. She lives on Nantucket Island, off the coast of Cape Cod, one of my most beloved places to visit. She's been a business owner for over 18 years. She had a restaurant, a gym, and now a solopreneur. And she has a 13-year-old son, Sully, 15-year-old daughter, Caroline. Her husband, Alan, is a high-performance field hockey coach who works for the U.S. national team. So a lot of coaching going on in that home, I'm guessing. (laughs) And I have the great pleasure of knowing her through our beloved friend and teacher, Saraswati Om, and through Trish doing breath work. So I've recently had three sessions with her. And let me tell you, I do a whole lot of different kind of healing modalities. And I'm open to trying just about everything. This was like nothing I've ever experienced. It was the biggest emotional release that I have ever had through any modality. And I'm just so grateful Trish was able to walk me through it. So we will definitely be talking about breathwork today and what that experience looks like. And she is one of those people that when I met her, it was like, I knew we were meant to cross paths. Like I've had a few people in my life like that. And she is definitely one of those. So I am so
0: grateful to know you and welcome Trish. Thank you so much, Meg. I'm so grateful to be here. I feel exactly the same way. When we first met, I was like, where's this person been? Mm. (laughs) I remembered you. It was weird, but it was just wonderful. And I am so honored to be able to be here with you and this awesome thing that you're doing. So thank you.
1: Mm, Thank you. So let's dive in. Let's go straight for the childhood. Let's go right there. So, what was your experience? like with your emotions as a
0: child. Wow, it's crazy. I just came back from I grew up in outside of Philadelphia and uh, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. And it was so funny cuz I was just there this past weekend and I was spending a lot of time with my extended family with my mom and my dad and aunts and uncles and all kinds of things and we had had a chance to talk about this a lot because, you know, from what I do, my parents are obviously supportive, but they're like, don't exactly know what it is that I do. And I basically say to them, like, you know, a lot of what I work through with people comes from their childhood. And they're like, well, did we do stuff to you? did like things happen? What happened? So they're like curious about it, but we can talk about it. So my childhood was great. I had a beautiful childhood, you know, grew up in the 80s. So Philadelphia was a different place then than it is now. And it was good. I mean, we had good stuff, but I really figured out early on I was a deeply 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 sensitive kid. I am one of those people that is just too much. I've always been a too much person and that was really clear in my family and my childhood. And I had a huge emotions as a kid and in 1987 I don't think we had the language, we certainly didn't have the resources, the awareness, the points of reference that we do now. And so when I started to to experience what I call grand mall panic attacks, starting Mm -hmm. at the age of 10, my parents literally did not know what to do with me. So in those days, you were either happy and well or crazy. That was pretty much the spectrum. (laughs) And I fell on the crazy side of the spectrum because my parents weren't sure what to do with all those big emotions that I was having and all these massive panic attacks. You know, they were helpful enough to bring me to a, to a therapist when I was 10. So I started therapy, you know, I'm 45 now. So I started therapy a good 35 years ago. <laughs> so it's not my first day at the rodeo in terms of like, you know, what this whole landscape looks like It started really early. So that's kind of my childhood in a nutshell. I was, a I was a lot, a lot of emotions, a lot of stuff. So mm. yeah. Yeah makes perfect sense how you end up as a
1: coach now. But I know that there was a, a journey to get to that place. So what were some way I mean, can you remember as a child, like what were some ways you would move the emotions through your body? Or was it just, were they getting stuck in the body?
0: Well, I remember, you know, I don't know if if you know people that are listening or you or anybody has ever experienced panic attacks before mm-hmm. but they are horrible and you you kind of lose trust in everything you lose trust in your body you lose trust in in your parent figures to be able to manage some of these things you could tell that the grown-ups around me were freaked out and didn't know what to do i didn't feel safe at school i didn't feel safe at home i didn't feel safe in my body so i didn't really know what to do with these things it was almost like this sort of hypervigilance of trying to prepare myself for when the inevitability of one of these episodes would occur. They came out of nowhere, seemingly. Ironically, now I see it more as sort of my ability to intuit. I didn't know what that was when I was little, Mm -hmm. but I could feel, you know, when people were tense, I could feel tension in rooms. I wasn't sure what that was. I think that was what metastasized into these panic attacks. So, I didn't move the energy. I just kind of like melted. It would typically end up in a pile of tears, you know, crawled under the, you know, my bed sheets or whatever. And the first time that I was, I guess, aided in trying to manage these, ironically, was the first time I learned breath work. So, I was 10 years old. I think I was in third grade. And they were getting so bad, these attacks that, they finally got me into a psychiatrist's office, and the psychiatrist taught me the box breathing technique in 1987. Wow. So, that was one of the first tools I was ever taught about how to manage, at that time, anxiety. Today, I use breath work to manage all kinds of different emotions, but that was my first sort of taste of a management tool. And it was also, ironically, something that I'm still teaching to this day. It's kind of crazy. Uh, oh, thank mm-hmm. you. I
1: shared my experience with having a panic attack, and I also, at the end of that episode, I it was the anxiety episode, and I shared box breathing as well oh, as a tool. Cool. I feel like it's just like such a such a basic breath that we can just tune into so easily anywhere, on location, wherever we are, right? So, oh, panic attacks. Yeah, I definitely have my own, my own journey with them. How did you begin to trust your body again? Because you shared that not only were you discovering that the people around you didn't know how to help you, you know, school wasn't safe, home wasn't safe, but you also shared that your body, you couldn't trust it.
0: Yeah. Well, it was interesting because like, you know, the, the sort of ways that we manage Emotions turn into, you know, this sort of identity or this personality. And I figured out pretty quickly that vulnerability was kind of a liability. Like, in other words, if I was really letting my freak flag fly, so to speak, when it came to this stuff, I got the sense that it was going to get me the exact opposite of what I needed, which was attachment of some sort. So, what became more socially acceptable and was able to I could easily translate this energy that was moving through my body into athletics was strength. I could become this sort of, I guess like my identity started to wrap around strength. Like how do I become strong enough to manage this emotional cocktail that's going on in my nervous system? And the first, I guess, expression of that at that age, which was a net positive experience, I suppose, where that strength and that energetic stuff that was going on in my nervous system were able to amalgamate was in sports. So I was pretty successful as an athlete. I was a swimmer for a long time. I dove and then I uh, began to play field hockey, ironically, which is you know the story of my life. My family is very field hockey family. <laughs> but it was the first place that I was able to take that same energy that typically would take me down and alchemize it into athletics. And so that was the first thing. And I began to like sort of use my strength, quotation mark, as an adaptive strategy to manage these emotions. And I'm putting the word manage in quotation marks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the second tool besides breath work. It was like, okay, I, I can figure out how to be strong yeah. and sort of push these down or channel them into athletics and that served me pretty well in terms of athletics for a yeah. long time. Yeah, so
1: even mm-hmm. even I love this manage and quotation marks, right? So <laughs> it was a coping strategy. It was a way that helped you but maybe didn't alleviate all of the underlying things is that what you're hinting at with wouldn't man. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. then you kind of like piggyback off of that identity and in other ways, you know, like Mm -hmm. I struggled academically. And so, you know, I'm, I have horrible ADD among other things and academics were certainly not where I was going to excel. And so that was another sort of emotional landmine to walk into. So that strength, I guess, which is again like i guess a socially acceptable coping strategy but really i think the socially acceptable coping strategies are the hardest ones to rewire that sometimes that strength would you know turn into humor or some sort of way to manipulate the environment so that i wouldn't have to feel like i was left out or feel shame for not understanding what was going on and then that same stuff sort of you know developed into what we might consider to be leadership skills <laughs> later on in life Yeah, which again, I would call them management tools. And once again, put that in quotation marks, because uh, I do think that that was just a coping strategy as well. You know, because if I could control the environment, and be the boss of the environment, it mitigated, you know, having to face the inevitable music of the emotional cocktail that was going on underneath everything.
1: Mm. Yeah. As you grew up, what was your experience, you know, through the teenage years and into your twenties like how how were your emotions showing up for you? Were they showing up physically in your body? What was your
0: coping like at that time? Wow, that's such a great question. I would consider myself to be like kind of a late bloomer, I guess, in a way. We had moved from philly to Manliest, like upstate New York when I was 13. So that was like smack in the middle of like between seventh and eighth grade, which I think is a hard time anyway. But moving from like the outskirts of a big city into like rural upstate New York was really weird. It was a weird thing. At a point in time where your body is changing and you know your hormones are going all over the place, it was so confusing. I don't feel like I had. You know, my emotions, I still had the anxiety. I was still managing that. My sense of self was really compromised at that time. I think teenage years for anybody are kind of sucky. (laughs) I've never heard anybody that was like being honest or like being a teenager was amazing. (laughs) It certainly wasn't for me. Interestingly, you know, I think I was experiencing a pretty significant amount of depression. I would call it depression as I was kind of getting into eighth, ninth grade. High school was such a confusing time, and I was just really confused about who I was. I think I was experiencing a lot of emotions, but what was happening was I was really confused about who I was at that time. I had no idea. And I remember getting into college. I went to Oneonta State for my first two years, and I remember getting there and discovering alcohol and being like, oh my God, I'm safe. Like I finally found something Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is going to help me. I remember feeling like, oh my God, this is my ticket to authenticity or whatever iteration Mm -hmm. of that meant at that time, because I did not fit in in high school. I never did. My brothers were super cool. I was not super cool. But when I got to college, something started to shift and the catalyst for that shift was alcohol. It was a way to connect. It was a way to be social. It was a way to mitigate my anxiety. I didn't feel the social sort of maelstrom that I would have to walk in emotionally when I walked into a room. There wasn't the identity I was dragging with me from high school. It was kind of like a fresh start. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, I mean, there's just this cocktail of of maladaptive management tools yeah. that got me into my early 20s. That's the plane I was on at that time. So that was when alcohol entered the, the mix.
1: The way you describe alcohol, I almost have a visual of it being like that, like safety blanket, that security blanket you have, like as a little child. I too discovered it, you know, in early in college, and it being a way to help for me numb feeling so much. It really allowed me to bypass what it was I was feeling underneath that. Right? Oh my god! Totally. Hmm. Yeah. So, at that time, were you seeking more self awareness, or did that come later? When did that start to enter the picture for you? Because it seems like from an early, you know, early childhood, you had this level of self awareness through therapy and starting to understand. But when did it really take flight?
0: Mm. Honestly, I think when I owned. You know, fast forward to kind of like my later, like, I guess my early twenties. I moved to Nantucket when I was 22 or three, just finishing up school. And again, I guess very unsure of who I was at that time. I had, I knew enough to be dangerous about therapy. Like I knew the importance of speaking and and like getting it out in the story, telling part of things. So I had been in, in, out of therapy throughout my twenties and in my thirties. But I think it was when I, bought my first business when I was 27 years old. I didn't have kids at the time. I was engaged at the time. And my business partner at the time, her name was Megan as well, mm-hmm. still one of my friends here on Nantucket. She really kind of introduced me to a more spiritual way of thinking about self-awareness. It was the first time that I had really ever considered more than just the practicality of self-awareness and really like more of the spirituality components. Mm. So I always say that like Megan was my gateway drug to, you know, the kind of self-awareness practices that I implement today because it was so powerful. She believed in it so much. And it was so interesting to see how she lived her life and how she managed things comparatively speaking to the way I managed them. And it had been modeled to me by her. So she was really my first teacher in that way of how to really look at self-awareness from a different perspective and how we integrated that into our business, which was really interesting because we were babies. We were like barely 26, 27 years old. You know, we bought this huge business with this massive rent and whatever. And she was so easygoing about things. And I was like, how do you do that? That's amazing to me. That's also like at the same time that yoga came into my life experience. I was about 23, 24 years old as that sort of Megan Story was coming in and yoga, and the mm-hmm. two of those things—the the practice of yoga and the breath—as well as Megan's more or less tutelage <laughs> on, on what self awareness be, beyond just the basic brass tacks looked like—that was how it started to really shift for me, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a what a powerful for me. There's before yoga and after yoga as well. Like, yep yeah. yeah, that's a defining moment in my life.
0: Yes,
1: yeah. mm-hmm. and when. I know as you work with clients now, and you have the most beautiful Instagram, so everyone follow it. I will share the link in the show notes. You talk a lot about this relationship between our egos and intuition, our egos and emotions and how it shows up. Will you share a little bit of your wisdom on
0: the ego? Oh, yeah. You know, I I think that was where when I really started to dig into this, I was like, When I went back to school, like after we had the restaurant business, we were out of that. And after I'd gone back to school for exercise science, which was my second thing, I remember learning about the brass tacks of the metabolic system. And this is like the most adjacent way I can like sort of lead into the ego awareness. Because for Mm -hmm. me, metabolic awareness was so impactful as like all these years as an athlete, just beating myself up and not understanding what I was doing and just being like, win, like that's pretty much it. But there was all these nuances to it, and all these these sort of like bits of information that I was like, oh my god, this would have been so useful to know as an athlete, you know, in high school or an athlete in college. Like this would have been so helpful to understand. And I remember being blown away by the simplicity of it. And I remember being in school when we were talking about metabolics and, and biomechanics, and I remember saying to my professor at the time, I'll never forget this. We laugh about it now, but I said oh my God, this is not that hard. Why don't people just talk about this? This is not that big of a deal. It's just like a few simple components. If you know how to do them and you're consistent about it, like anybody can do this, no matter what level of fitness they are. And I was getting really emotional about it. And my professor turns around when I made that statement, he's like, oh no, no, we don't tell people how this works. We just tell them what to do. That's our job security. And I remember saying to him, like, I'm never going to do that. Never going to do that. I'm going to tell everybody how this works. The same thing was true of understanding how the distinction between our emotional self and our ego self. So the way I describe ego is like, it comes with the human packaging. It's like part of your survival circuitry. It's part of being human. It's a beautiful part of being human. It's our survival software. It's the thing that's installed within us, you know, on this 2 million year old setting. That is designed to keep us safe and alive. And it does a really great job. You know, whenever I start working with a client, I'm like, well, your ego has done a wonderful job thus far. And I'm just very grateful that it existed. And it is kind of an impersonal thing, but it feels very personal at times. It's not something that we can get rid of. I don't think you can kill your ego. It is just a part of our consciousness that keeps us in a state of safety. But I think in terms of healing, If the ego is running the show of your life, which it was for me, and I'm sure it was for most of us before we kind of become aware of it, I think that that's where we get really mixed up. And that's understanding this survival software and how it had impacted my ability to become authentic, my ability to feel safe. I think it really kind of puts us into chronic self-abandonment if we're not careful, and the ego in the way I look at it is managing our physical safety as well as our emotional safety until we become aware <laughs> of the fact that it's there. And then, you know, we have to reclaim responsibility for managing the emotional safety and thank the ego for its service, but, you know, give it a seat in the car, just not allowing it to drive or pick the music anymore. Yeah. If that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love there's a quote from Liz Gilbert talking about fear and not driving, yes. the, not driving the car. And it's the same thing with the ego. And I love how you talk about it in the way that the ego isn't bad. It's not this thing that we need to shame or kill off, right? It's just recognizing that it kept us safe and alive all these years and now just not letting it drive the car, right? Yeah, I guess
0: the mm. car it's totally mm-hmm. allowed. It's not yeah. a bad thing. It's not going anywhere. Yeah, you know, it's that's one of my my the things I laugh about the most. If people are like, I think I killed my ego. I'm like, okay, like
1: no, you didn't. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. It'll be back. It's still it was, there. it'll come. It'll yeah. it is still there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my basic description. I love that. How
1: do you help people now as a coach? How do you help people to
0: basically put the ego in the passenger seat? Well, I think. The things that I love most about my practice is I really I don't want to give people directions to places I haven't been. I don't mm-hmm. feel like that's appropriate if, if, and that's for me, that's for me personally. I had to learn this stuff on my own first, the hard way, which is how I think the best lessons are learned or when we learn the hard way. and I really understand the importance of suffering because I think it's part of being human, but I like people to have a roadmap when they are in suffering to kind of, I guess, something that they can cling to as they navigate it. So how I do it is I I mean, honestly, empathy is one of the biggest tools I have. I just understand what it feels like to struggle that way. Mm-hmm. You know, when I had to learn this lesson, and I say that quite honestly, I think the it came to a head for me specifically when my business and Syracuse just dis- dissolved, that everything that we had just spoken about that I had never dealt with fully Came Mm -hmm. up at that time. So I think of emotional, sort of the unfelt emotions in our life or the misdirected emotions. They don't just disappear, they sit and wait for us to come back to them and understand them, heal, process, metabolize them. You know, I think it was Carl Jung that was like, you know, unfelt emotions don't go anywhere, they get buried alive and then materialize in ugly ways. For me, it was like, well, my business fell apart. Everything fell apart, everything I had never dealt with. my divorce, leaving Nantucket, the business itself, you know, my time as a single mom, my childhood. It was like the ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and future showed up on my doorstep at that time, and then I had to start dealing with it and I don't think you can think your way through healing. I think you have to feel your way through it. And I don't think I could give people directions anywhere until I went through a lot of that stuff myself. And I felt like truly Meg, I felt like I was going to die. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I've never felt so confused. I've never felt so lost. And thankfully, I found an amazing teacher that helped me navigate it. I I am indebted to her indefinitely. I mean, she saved my life, Mm. truly. But the roadmap that I was able to sort of figure out myself is the one that I help people with. I like to give language to things. I like people to understand that everything is figure outable. At the same time, it's going to suck sometimes. Yeah. So knowing what your ego does when you're in a lot of emotional distress or understanding what your patterns are, whether they're going to help you or hurt you, I think is imperative mm-hmm. to healing. And I think that the hard stuff truly is what makes you great. It's just not easy. So my favorite tool is bringing empathy into it and saying like, listen, this sucks and I'm going to be right here with you the whole time and I can't do it for you, but I don't think you should have to do it alone. And that's sort of the backbone of my entire coaching practice. It really was forged out of some of the more challenging moments of my own life, but I think... That's part of what brings us together is we all understand suffering, we've all experienced trauma. And um, I think that if we can sit with each other in it, it makes it a little easier.
1: Thank you for sharing that. How long would you say you were in that period of suffering before you, I'm almost visualizing like a hole, you're down in this, the bottom of this dark hole and all of a sudden a rope gets thrown to you and you take the first, you know, grasp for the first pulling yourself up? Like, how long were you in this period of suffering? And what made you know, like, enough's enough? Like, let's find our
0: way. Let's find our way out. Oh, my God. Well, it was kind of a layered process for me, because one of my biggest things is feeling safe with people. I think as a little girl, it's very hard for me. One of my biggest traumas is feeling safe with other people. You know, as like, as I stated, I'm sure that there's like, you know, Maggie, like you've got this too. It's like that too much disease. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm too much, not enough. It's kind of like two opposite sides of the same coin. So for me, you know, it was really being reflected back to me that I felt there were very few places where I felt safe. But at the end of the day, I realized, I think at that moment, I'm like, I don't think this is an outside problem. I think mm-hmm. this is an inside problem. I don't think I feel safe with myself. That, the whole analogy is actually so perfect because that's how it was described to me the first time I started to understand this. How do I get out of that dark place? I think we've talked about this previously in a private conversation, but the first, the first little angel that showed up in my life, her name was Julie. And she basically, I don't know how she knew that I was just like in it. And she reached out to me on Facebook. She had been a member of the gym that I owned. And she framed it like this. She goes, hey, seems like you're going through a transition, which was a very kind way of putting it. (laughs) And uh, she goes, I think I'm going through a transition too. Can we do this together? Mm -hmm. I have no idea why I said yes to her. I don't know why I said it, but I did. And I say that you know, my first teacher was really Julie getting out of this hole. She was like the Bud Light version. And that (laughs) led me to my teacher, Renee, who was 100% tequila. (laughs) She was a much more potent but I needed like the Julie version first, Mm -hmm. but Julie described it to me, you know, in terms of like what I needed to do. And she was very transparent. She's like, look, I think this is where you are right now. And I'm not the person that's going to be able to help you navigate this. She's the first person that said to me, you need a teacher. You need a mentor. Yeah. And, um, she said, I don't know who that person is. She said, but you have to go inside of yourself now. You really do. And she was trying to give me analogies and points of reference. Her point of reference for me is one of the points of reference I use for all of my new clients. And I'll share it quickly because it's such a good Mm -hmm. metaphor for what the inner work I felt like is like at first. She described it when she had had her moment of Let's call it, you know, reckoning, which I think we all have at at different points in our life, dark night of the soul, I guess, that she had had a vision of a hole in the ground. And in the vision, there was a rope, just like you had described going down into this hole. And she obviously followed that rope down and got to the bottom of this big, huge hole. And in the corner of this hole made out a figure that was a child for sure, naked, naked, curled up into a teeny tiny ball, shivering, soaking wet and filthy. And she approached this figure and immediately was concerned and said, oh my God, like, how did you get down here? Who are you? What is this? And the figure turns her face up to Julie. And it was a face that Julie immediately recognized. Of course, it was her. And this little child version of her responds by saying, where have you been? You just left me here. You know, you just left me. And I remember coming out of that story, looking at Julie and just blinking at her and being like, how the hell do I do that? And she said, it's the hardest thing you're ever going to do. And so that was the beginning. And I have to say, it was another two years before I felt brave enough to go to my teacher. And when I finally did, the first thing she said to me when I showed up at her center was, I've been waiting for you for two years. Get inside. It's time to go to work. And I mentored with her for five years. So mm. that was how I got out of it. You know, it's, I don't think we're ever fully out, you know, for the rest of our life. It's not like Super Mario Brothers where you pass certain levels. and <laughs> I got out of the whole level. Now I'm in this other thing, but that's, it was a lot of inner work. It was a lot of understanding my emotional self, things like self-abandonment, ego, what healing felt like, you know, again, it wasn't a thinking process. It was a feeling process. And that was really hard. But yeah, so I would say it probably took me about f- five, five and a half years to work yeah. through that. Mm-hmm.
1: I love to share on this podcast, you know, my own stories and other stories that there is this time period, right? Like there is the the reckoning, the rock bottoms, the dark nights of the soul, and then there is. I like to think of it as almost the gathering, like the gathering of courage, putting it like in your basket until you're finally ready to take that step and go to a teacher or whoever it yeah. is, whatever modality it is. Yeah. yeah. So Renee, because I know who Renee is, she runs the Center of Grace. Is that what it's yes, called? She does. In Syracuse? Yeah. Her name is Renee. yeah. yeah mm-hmm. In Manlius. And yep. she took you on a journey of breath work. Yeah. Yeah. Sure yeah. Would you, sure will you share what breath work is for somebody who may not understand what that term means?
0: Yeah. It's interesting because when I, we've talked about this a few times, like breath work for me has been in my life longer than I really remember. I mean, I first was introduced to it in therapy at 10. And then, you know, I was a swimmer, I taught yoga. So breath work was always a huge part of my sort of life but it was so obvious that you kind of forget it's there. And when I first started working with Renee, the modality that my teacher, my mentor Renee uses is something called SRI. It's called Somato Respiratory Integration. And when I laid down and worked with her for the first time, and again, you have to remember this is after 30 plus years of therapy. It was such a powerful experience that I shot up off the the table after we were done. And I was like, what the hell is that? What is that? What are you doing in here? You know? And she was so kind to me about it and, you know, began to really mentor me in that. She had said to me at that point in time, I am pretty sure at some point in your life, Trish, you're going to be teaching this. This is very adjacent to all the stuff you've been coaching for the past decade plus. So I don't necessarily know if it's going to be SRI that's going to be your modality, but there's this other modality that I feel would be really appropriate for you. And she had been studying it for probably a few years. I mean, Renee has been using breathwork for 30 years. Renee's been doing breathwork before breathwork was even cool, <laughs> you know, before <laughs> Wim Hof, Renee's been doing breathwork. Yeah. But we went out to LA. And there was a new modality of breathwork I had never experienced before that was called transformational breathwork. It's done in a group setting. It can be done individually. I personally think the, the, the group settings are more powerful and medicinal, but the guy that had been teaching it, Renee was like adamant that I meet him because he was also a trainer like I was and a coach like I was in a sports facility for years. So his ability to amalgamate this sort of old-fashioned athletic coach persona along with this healing modality is like where the go-go gadget arms part of the breathwork for me really showed up. And so it was sort of an amalgamation of Renee's tutelage of self-awareness, breathwork, and healing, my background in fitness, athletics, and traditional modalities of coaching. And this guy, John Paul Crimmie, and his breath work, where I really felt like this is my jam. It brought together everything I've been doing in life coaching and took this thing that if I couldn't get somebody where I needed to get them through the self-awareness work, I could definitely get them there with the breath. And it was amazing. That's where things really started to get super fun.
1: Yeah. And so that's, that's how I came to know you was yep. at Saraswati's retreat this past June. So only a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and I went to Trish's breathwork workshop the first evening that I got there and I had never met Trish before. I had no idea what breathwork was beyond how I know it as yoga and how I know it as all of the breathing and meditation that I do. So I almost consider it an extension, but also different than what it is I typically do in my own practice. So she prepared us so beautifully that any fears that I didn't know might happen, she prepared me for. And because they did happen. And I think had the foundation not been as strong as she had built it for us, that could have been a pretty scary thing. And so I was lying on my yoga mat. I started this, it's called circular breath, right? Yep. Started this circular breathing. And the first thing I noticed was I got really cold and the room was warm. So it was kind of, it was noticeable that my body temperature just dramatically dropped. So I got really cold. And then I immediately got hot, like uncomfortably hot to the point I was dripping sweat. By the time the session was done, I had to go take a shower because I had soaked through my clothing. It was that hot. And I felt my legs starting to cramp up. So it's amazing music is happening. Trish is coaching us like this, you know, spin instructor kind of energy happening through the breathing, helping us to keep going. because. It's uncomfortable. Breathing that way is uncomfortable. And I think it's probably the ego, right? I think you shared it's the ego that's just like, let's stop doing this. You don't really want to do this. Let's not go there, right? So I'm being met with all of this resistance, this internal resistance. And... As we go deeper and deeper into it, my body starts to cramp up. At first, I think I have some cramps in my legs and then my hands go into this like lobster claw, which I think would have scared me had Trish not told me that this could happen. So it was like this tetany happening where your hands cramp up. I brought my hands up to my heart and I eventually rolled onto my side because I just, I've I was just intuiting that this is the way that I needed to go. So I was kind of in that like fetal position, continuing the breath. And we, you know, we're probably, I don't know, 15 minutes into it. And I start to feel myself shake and cry. And it's this almost like this whimper cry that I have never heard myself make, except for in breath work. I started to have this crying happening. And I want to say that I was met with a moment that I could turn back and go back to safety. Or I also recognized that there was something in me, there was some sort of stored emotion or trauma, something that was stuck in my body that wanted out. And I had the option to turn back, or to let it out. And it really did feel like a conscious choice of do we keep going or not. And I chose to keep going. I think the energy of the room helped me. The people around me helped me. But ultimately, when I got to that point of really shaking and crying, I could see, you know, some people see visions of like, oh, this happened to me at eight years old. And I looked, I was wearing this outfit. And someone said said this to me, that's really not been my experience. My experience has been, I recognize where I feel something stuck in the body, and I don't really know its origin. And honestly, I don't even need to know. Like I can release it without needing to know what it was. So for me, this first experience was in my gut. It was in the belly. And it was this really dark, I have an eye mask on. I mean, it's black in there. I'm only seeing black, but I see this textured black in front of me, this just giant emotion and I feel it moving up from my belly and wanting to come out like almost like out through the crying and the breathing like through the breath like using the breath as the vehicle to move and when things started to get real scary when I started to feel like okay we're really here I'm I can do this I felt Trish's hands on my back and my first thought was, I am disgustingly sweaty. How can she be oh, like, what is happening here? Like, And then I was like, she's here to help, right? She's here to help. And so with just her hands on my back, I mean, it couldn't have been more than 90 seconds, right? It was probably a short, short experience of getting this trauma out of the body. It was the biggest emotional release I've ever had in my life. And... Like you shared with your experience with Renee, when it was all said and done, I just sat up and was like, what the heck just happened to me? Like, what happened to me? I couldn't speak for like 20 minutes. Everyone else is talking about their experiences. I couldn't even speak. Like, I was just like, I don't know what happened. And then I was able to really become grounded by talking to Trish after and being, you know, that feeling of like, you're safe, like you're here, you're safe. And I have now gone on to do this virtually with Trish. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work the same way that if I could have these big releases and every single time I have felt my body release stuck emotion. And it's incredible to the point that I'm now looking into going and getting trained in this modality because it is the biggest tool I've ever experienced myself to Physically release emotion from the body and I feel lighter. Like when I do this, I feel lighter. And it's no coincidence. When I look at the timing of this, this was June. I launched a podcast since then. This is changing my life. Like I have goosebumps all over my body right now because this releasing the stuck emotion, the stuck trauma will help you in other areas of your life. It's helping me to step out and be more confident and more
0: in my authentic self. Oh, Meg, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was such an amazing experience. And, you know, I think you're recounting it because everybody's experience is so different. And the beautiful part about this breath work is, we have talked about this before, Meg, holding space, which is what Sarah Swati and I were doing at that time. And then the people that are breathing. It is really interesting. It's like, they always say like, give a healing, get a healing kind of thing. Mm. And I have to say that that container, Sarah Swati, I think she's also been on your podcast. She is one of my yeah. dearest friends. She is one of my closest friends. And we have been friends for well over a decade. We were Lululemon ambassadors together and that's how we met, but she is one master. That girl can hold some space. <laughs> she is a master at it. And we love to collaborate. So I think that container specifically it was just a really powerful container. It, the safety of that container was really special. But it is scary to have these emotions because they're so powerful. We don't realize that they, you know, speaking on trauma, that's what this breathwork addresses specifically. You know, we talked about the breath the box breath technique before. Box breathing is a really great tool to mitigate anxiety. There's all kinds of different styles of breathwork to address different things this circular breath work, this transformational breath work is literally, it addresses trauma. That's what it's designed to do. That's what it does. So it goes right to the source of a lot of our suffering. And this trauma is trapped in the body. It's in the nervous system. And we we learn how to live with it and manage it and move our energy around it and, you know, kind of tailor our personality to mitigate people bumping into it, but this breathwork goes right to it and gets it up and out of the body. And so when people have recounted their experience with it, which I think you would probably validate is people have assimilated it to their experiences with psilocybin, psychedelics, Mm -hmm. ayahuasca, all these big plant medicines that people are really gravitating to in terms of healing these days. And I love this modality because as a, a former bartender whose client lists, you know, has many of my former bar customers <laughs> who are no longer drinking, you know, uh, this doesn't compromise somebody's sobriety either. It's just yeah. your breath. So addressing trauma with this tool is something that doesn't require anything from outside of you in order to access it. And I think that's the embodiment of empowerment. Like, mm-hmm. I think I truly believe that we are the ones that are capable of healing ourselves. And if anything underscores that, it's the breath work. It's so powerful, but it works. Like I've had people, myself included, it's completely changed my life. And I'm, you know, I'm not afraid. I've done psychedelics. I've I've enjoyed those experiences. And I've had really profound experiences with psychedelics, but they've been nothing for me compared to the breath work. And I think, you know, as I listen to people tell their stories between Syracuse and New York and working with Saraswati and and on Nantucket here was, you know, Nantucket had never done transformational breath work until we started doing it here. And I have people that I've known for 20 years who did one session, one single session. And, you know, that's all they really needed to get over a hump. And I had one real estate agent come up to me who was very quiet and very like unassuming we happened to be taking a yoga class together and she pulled me aside and said, "Look, I want to tell you that that one session profoundly changed my life, that one time." And I would have never known about it if she didn't, you know, feel compelled to tell me. She goes, "I don't know what we did in there, but she's like something shifted in me and I haven't been the same person since." Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful and I think it's such a powerful tool for people that work in the healing arts too help people navigate that hump because the the trauma in the nervous system. It really does. I think, I believe the trauma is separation from the self. I really believe that's what it is. And when it's not there, the ego doesn't have to manage it. Then we have easier access to authenticity and healing and growth. It's profound. It's remarkable.
1: I love what you just said there. The trauma is the separation from the self. Mm-hmm. And that's why something like this can bring us back into alignment. Yeah. Quick, too. Mm. Quick. Bring us back to and connecting us with that that inner child. Right? That's
0: what it's all about. I mean, what we talk about in the breath work, and this was, you know, from my tutelage from Renee, you know, I have to really give credit where credit is due. She taught me so much of this is that everybody is a mix of light and dark. And this breathwork addresses the shadow which is the human self the inner child the trauma all the stuff that kind of makes us human it's like what we sign up for being human but at the same time there's soul and divinity and and light and power and potential and grace and every single human on the planet is a walking paradox and this breathwork <laughs> addresses that paradox so it's almost like two kids in a horse suit like who's going to win. They both win. Like the head and the heart work as a team. And what's between the inner child and, you know, the soul or what's in between the light and the dark is the trauma. So I I was working with a psychic because of course I was, and she was Uh like picking up on whatever this stuff was. She's like, what are you doing in these groups? Uh, what am I seeing here? And I said, Oh, it's called breath work. She's like, Oh, my God, you're reconnecting people to their souls. And it's the trauma just pops right up, you know, in these sessions, people have described it as like a soul massage that they leave. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What was that about? And it's fast. It's just remarkable.
1: And I'm such a proponent of therapy and also started going when I was young, but therapy has only gotten me so far. And I still use therapy, right? Because I still need to process and talk things out loud. And somehow me saying it out loud helps me to understand it better, even if just to have that sounding board. This brought me to a whole other level, which I think it's an and world. I don't think it's an either or I think it's an and world. But if we are not addressing all of these things that are getting stuck inside of our bodies, like it has to go somewhere, right? Like these emotions, when we just sweep it under the rug, they have to go somewhere, and they're just getting lodged in the body. And this is yeah. one way, this is the quickest, most efficient way that I've ever been met with to move it through the body.
0: yeah, and I think that this, you know because I've had a therapist, i mean, like i said i've I've had therapists at least a dozen over my thirty five years of doing this stuff. I still have a therapist, I love my therapist. And I think, you know, the stories that we find ourselves in are often what is keeping us stuck, you know, and the stories are usually sort of an iteration of the ego. The ego's like got more stories than mother goose and the <laughs> ego's interpreting this emotion until we take over the responsibility for it. When we move this stuff through, you know, it kind of helps us tell a different story about ourselves that we're not trying to, you know, make sense of something that's kind of nonsensical. You know, I think that that's kind of a, like you said, it's, it's, there's no such thing as a panacea, right? Like there's no one thing that's like, this solved every bit of my issues. Mm -hmm. Like my issues are far from solved, (laughs) far. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say as a coach, like I do this for a living and I get a D minus in it most days. But this tool really helped me pull together all the work in therapy and all the self-awareness work. It was kind of, a little part of the cocktail in terms of healing that really, really began to gel, bring things together. And I think a lot of people have said the same. So thanks for that, Meg. Yeah, it's Mm. beautiful. Thank you. Are
1: you ready for some rapid
0: fire? Oh, I'm so ready. (laughs) I love rapid fire. Okay. What is your favorite book? Oh my God, this changes every day, Meg. I think for me, like the book I've given away the most Is well, there's two. The first is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I love that book. Mm -hmm. I love how he speaks to resistance. I'm kind of obsessed with Stephen Pressfield. It's one of the books that I listen to twice a year at least. I gift it more than any other book. So that's my probably my favorite book of all time. The other book I have given away more than any other book besides The War of Art is a book called Brave Enough. It's by Cheryl Strid and it's just a teeny mm-hmm. tiny little green book. It's so small mm-hmm. and it's not a book that you read through. It's like a nightstand book and you just keep it by your nightstand. And I, when I gift it, I say to people, look, take this little teeny book, put it in your backpack or put it by your nightstand. If you're having a tough day, just open it and it's going to have exactly what you need to see right there. So those are my mm-hmm. two that I gift the most. I love that. I love mm-hmm.
1: Stephen Pressfield so much. And Cheryl Strayed is my hero. So true. Yep. Yeah. Okay. What are you currently reading? Oh my god!
0: We talked about this so many times. You know what I'm going to say. You know what I'm going to say. Okay. So I From live Nantucket. on Nantucket. Yep. I live on Nantucket, and I am an avid, rabid Ellen Hildebrand fan. I am obsessed. Me too. I see her running all the time. Mm-hmm. I just finished the Hotel Nantucket. I just finished 28 Summers. I am now on Golden Girl. I can't read self-help books at night. I can't read any of the stuff that helps me with my career at night. I need to shut my brain off. And I'm obsessed with Nantucket. Nantucket is like my little BFF. She's like Mm -hmm. my mom. So any story that has to do with my best friend Nantucket, I am all about it. So me and Ellen Hildebrand. Yeah. yeah. She's my girl right now.
1: Hotel <laughs> Nantucket was my favorite so far. I love so all good. of her books. And I was like, Ooh, this one's good. I love so it. Good. So good. All right. What's one thing you know, for sure?
0: That's such a good question, Meg. Oh man. You know what? This is something I know for sure. This is 100% something I know for sure. I think people's kryptonite and superpower are always the same thing. That's what I know for sure. I know that with every ounce of my soul, my entire coaching practice is built on that principle that someone's trauma almost always is in direct correlation with their gift. My friend, Claire Spencer, who works with Aubrey Marcus, she's in the Fit for Service Fellowship. She is his PR manager, and she's been a close friend of mine for 20 years. We met at Nantucket, and she's the first person that put those words into my brain. And I was like, Oh my God, Claire, that's the truest thing I've ever heard. That is the baseline of my coaching practice that your superpower and kryptonite are typically exactly the same thing. Mm. That is what I know for sure.
1: That was so powerful. Thank you. Okay. And this one putting you on the spot. So if you don't have anything, that's okay too. Do you have a favorite quote or poem or saying, even if you have to look it up?
0: No, I know. I know who it is. Mm -hmm. My Angelou is like my touchstone. She is my favorite. She is my touchstone. I pray to her all the time. She has at least a few that I kind of base my practice on. The first is do the best you can until you know better. And then once you know better, do better. It's so simple, but it's so powerful. I love that. People show you who they are, believe them the first time is another one of hers. I just love the simplicity of her words. I feel like she her poetry and her words are cobbled together in such crazy, simple ways that she kind of laughs with how simple they come out, but she's like, knows how complex it is to put them into practice. But she's my touchstone. She's one of the bases of my whole, yeah. every quote from my Angelou, I'm all about it. <laughs> mm, love that. Love that quote. All right. Thank
1: you, Trish. So you can visit the show notes for links on how to connect with Trish. Her website is trishlawcoaching.com. Her Instagram is at the Trish Law. A hundred percent recommend following. It's my favorite Instagram to follow. Love, absolutely love her. Anything else
0: you want to put out there? I just want to say thank you, Meg. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for, for everything. Thank you for what you are. And who you are and all this. I'm just so grateful. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Trish. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode.
0: This podcast is part of the
1: Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM.